Welcome to the Theory of DFS podcast. I'm Jordan Cooper, the co-author of the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports. It's a 15-hour audio DFS masterclass. You can find at theoryofdfs.com. Join with me this week. They're the purveyor of Occupy Fantasy and the Emotional Bankroll podcast. It's Brian Jester. What exactly is an emotional bankroll? The way I look at it is the uh, the range of emotions, right? Like we all have the money in our bankroll, but if your emotional bankroll runs out, then you start making bad decisions. So it was a it was actually a term I heard on a gambling podcast, and I, it stuck with me. I thought it was a great term. So there's no, it's not the actual money. It's not like you have angry money or sad money. No, it's right? just how the much money has no feelings. No, how much bankroll you got in your head of how much you can take. Right, but that that playing professionally. I mean, I you you would have to think that like the emotional bankroll matters when it comes to uh, playing in a in a profitable way. There's no there's no amount there's like the emotional bankroll you have of being a lifetime loser is it's just basically as much as you can afford. There's no right. right there's no there's no emotions behind it other than than oh I'm doing this for fun and maybe I get lucky one of these times. So. That's, that's more of an issue of, of if you want to call professional players, but where you're profitable from an expected value standpoint in the long run, but the name of DFS is not just playing profitably. It's actually realizing that EV. Yeah, and you got to stick around long enough to realize it, right? We've had so many great players, and whether it's poker, DFS, sports betting, investing, whatever it is, right, that have the, the, the raw natural talent to be one of the best, but they don't last long enough because they don't handle that side of the equation as well. So would you call it bankroll management? A lot of people call it, call it like managing your emotional bankroll, but the way that you put it on your podcast, which I think is, is better. Cause I think there's a big difference between like intellectually understanding like Kelly, right? Intellect, intellectually understanding that like, yes, I'll play a percentage of my thing and what, you know, like that and and the difference between uh I've just I've just lost six weeks in a row and I'm down twenty-eight thousand dollars. Uh am I am I even good? Like like I, I've always said, Brian, that it that you know that you're a good player. Like one of these proxies of if you're a good player is the opposite of how most bad players would act when they win. Where when Typically, when you win, you're more, you're more likely to chalk it up to, okay, thank God I realized my EV. I, I was lucky to do that. And then when you lose, you're like, I must be doing something wrong. While bad players think in terms of, I, I must have been really skillful to win. And when I'm losing, it's because I'm unlucky. And like, yes. if you're not spending like at least once a year, at least once a year on a downswing where you think maybe it's time to withdraw all my money from these accounts and, uh, and go get like some type of job that has still that probably may pay more possibly with the same skills, but just you know you don't want to sit at a fucking desk all day and do shit that you don't like. Like if you're you not think to... if you're not thinking that at least once a year, then you're probably you're probably not playing well. No, dude, you have to have that crisis at least once per year, and it's very little satisfaction, honestly, until you see like your bank account or whenever you do something with the money. But like you said. Most of the time, I was fortunate my most recent win is actually in the middle of kind of an upswing where like pretty much every other win has been after a downswing and you're getting back into the green or closer to the green even. So, um, yeah, it, it really is a sigh of relief most of the time, which it doesn't sound that exciting if you're not a pro player, right? Like people aspire to be a pro player or play professionally, but, you know, it's uh, it's not all, all glitter for sure. 
Right. I, mo- most most of the time, when 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 I win a GPP, it like like NBA forty eight thousand dollars or MMA a, a couple of weeks ago for like forty something thousand dollars. It's it's not like I'm I'm ha- it's it you're happy, but it's more of like a happiness of like like. It's like you said, a sigh of relief. Like it's like, okay, oh, 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 I am, I am good at this game. And over the course of the past eight months, like that, those two things represented now. Now I'm positive, yeah. right? It's not a matter. It's not a matter of oh, I mean, th- you you must see this all the time when dealing with uh, people that that you talk to. That you could say, okay, this year, you'll tell someone this year I've had a hundred thousand dollar bink, a fifty thousand dollar bink. A thirty thousand dollar bank and whatever, and they'll go. Oh, you must be up like a quarter of a million dollars. It's like now nah, I'm up like twenty two thousand, <laughs> right? Like, and they go, well, how are you only up twenty two thousand if you had all those big wins? It's like, well, you you lose ninety percent of the time, <laughs> right, dude? Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's funny because I had a friend text me after one of my screenshots last year. He's like, dude, I feel like you just crush it all the time. He's like, I need to quit my job and do what you're doing. I was like, nah, dude, stay what you're doing. I promise, you don't see the in betweens, right? People only see the screenshots on Twitter. Maybe we'll get a, we'll get a pro every now and then that'll post the road tracker chart where it's like psychotically all the way down and then a spike up. But most of the time, people are just seeing the the positives of it. And I don't want to spin it as some super negative thing. I enjoy what I do and I love what I do. But the 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 ups and downs certainly can wear on you. Right, and and the hardest part of DFS, whether you're a recreational player or or, or a pro or whatever, is the sample sizes for this these games are so small. 17 week 18 week NFL season, right? Maybe you have a uh, 45 MMA slates in a year or golf or something like that and you're you're there going uh I don't know if I don't know the difference between playing playing badly or getting unlucky. Like <laughs> like you right. like you a lot of time we're playing well and getting unlucky. I mean, we have like proxies, top 1 like for for a daily sport, top 1% finishes, top 0.1% finishes. Like, how do you, Brian, how do you determine, like, especially we'll get into like what I consider your specialty would be like MMA, esports, showdown, like these, these kind of like small, small, uh, not small field, but large field, small player pool, yes. like duplication heavy type uh, contest that, that I consider you'd be extremely, well, extremely good in. Uh, like, how do you determine the difference between, especially in those contests, the difference between playing badly or or being unlucky it's a super thin line especially like for mma recently like you'll i, I track my uniques after every slate starts right yeah that's the first thing i check before you the, the first fight goes off right how many uniques that i have what did the field do and oftentimes i have a pretty nice sweet spot of i want to be i want to have this many uniques and i'll see people have more uniques than me and i'll think hmm did they play it better than me or are they just playing really bad uniques? Because it's a thin line, right? And especially like NBA Showdown, I think the line is so razor thin between having a good unique lineup and just a lineup that flat out can't win. Now in MMA, NFL Showdown, those bad uniques can win, but most of the time you just see some guy uh, double stack or stack the main event in all 150 lineups or a guy play a 5% fighter in 75% of their lineups or fade a bunch of, well, there's a lot of different ways you could have bad uniques. So first of all, check my uniques. Are they good? And then track those uniques over time, the number of uniques. Because for NFL Showdown, and I said this on a podcast this week earlier, where when I first started and when I won the million in in Showdown, I was getting a ton of uniques when I first started. And I really didn't change my process that much. But two years later, my uniques had fallen off a cliff because the fields had gotten larger, the fields had gotten way sharper, 
in NFL Showdown. And now I know either I have to change my approach to be more high variance, find some kind of other different edge, or or just pack it up. And maybe the edge is now gone for NFL Showdown and I, and I move somewhere else. But then for the non-unique sports, it, really the biggest thing for me is, can I predict what the field is going to do accurately? Pro projected ownership, lineup construction. If I can do that, then I know at least where the edges lie. And if I, if, if I go into a slate and I'm wrong about ownership and that trend continues, then I know, ooh, maybe I need to, to take a second look at this sport or, or step back from this sport. And uh, that's really what it comes down to. There's all kinds of different metrics you can look at, but really what it comes down for me is, can I predict what the field is going to do? And can I predict what I'm going to do actually having plus EV? Right. You're, you're, I mean, you've explained it the same way that I do. I mean, you, you used to do a showdown show with Colin Drew. Yes. That was, that was good. And I considered you to be like, it was, it was like yin and yang yeah. on that show, right? Sure. Like Colin yeah. was more, yeah. and Colin was great at showdown, but more in line with the correlations, right? How, how could you correlate outcomes together better than the field? And your attitude was, I want to relish in the chaos where correlation doesn't matter as much. And that's highlighted by in 2000, the, the, the Super Bowl in 2019. You won a million. I won second half showdown, that same Six. slate. Uh, the, the, you, I mean, I, I do the same thing in showdown. The high score, the high scoring games, it makes mathematical sense. The correlation will exponentially matter more. The low scoring slates, Dude, you, I mean, they're, they're fucked up lineups that like you look at and go, this makes absolutely no sense, but correlation is so much weaker in a 13 to three game with only one touchdown. Yes. It's like, well, Edelman, Edelman had like what, like 12 for 150 or something. Michelle had the only touchdown and it's like, well, it's like no quarterbacks and like a wide receiver, running back, defense, kicker, comp, like it's some really weird thing that you're leaving forty six hundred on the table. You're like, and you and you were, I mean, you cared more about that than than the, like the outcomes of the games, and that's why like I called you my my spirit animal because that because <laughs> that's how I play NFL Showdown, and we'll go into that. There's a balance between the two methodologies that. You know, I think you lean very heavily on one side of, and because you lean so heavily on the high variance, like you're playing a lot of high variance lineups, you must have some, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty guaranteed you, you must have some MMA slates, some NFL showdown slates where you're minus 96%. For sure. And definitely NFL showdown. And I would, I would actually argue in MMA, I don't even think my approach is that exploitative. I think the sport is so young and the edge isn't realized yet. And my fingers are still crossed that it doesn't turn into NFL showdown where what all the pros flock and, and people actually figure out the right way. I actually think I'm playing pretty optimally in MMA and people may look at my lineup that one, two weeks ago, whatever. And uh, the hate mail in my DMs would say otherwise, but I, I, first of all, I relish in the fact when people say that lineup was terrible. I can't believe you won. It's like, well, I did something right. First of all, I put such a dedicated strategy into each individual slate. Like if I have a lineup in there, there's a reason that lineup is in there. And I've built out, whether it's a story or some sort of ownership scenario where I think that's a good play and that's a good lineup. But I think, actually think in MMA, I'm, I'm playing it pretty straightforward because I'll tell, cause I work with my brother really closely and he, he runs uniques and we talk about uh, what other people are doing and whatnot. And before a slate will run, I'll tell him, 
hey, Moose, I, I don't know, man. I played it pretty conservatively today. I'd be surprised if I had top three uniques. And he's like, we'll see. And then we pulled out and I had top three uniques again. So I really think I've, I've, I've balanced an MMA that, that uh, optimal versus exploitative. But in NFL showdown, you're right, because the field has gotten so much sharper that it requires a higher advantage approach. And yes, I will have slates where I might not get any money back. Right. And in order to to have the higher variance uh, style that you have of the lineups that you build, the mm -hmm. more important projecting ownership is, I mean, yes. to me, to me is the most important. Like I, that's how I view my play also. Like, yes, you could go by long term top 0.1% lineups in, in, you know, non-dupe type of sports type of thing. Yep. But uh, like in, in, in MMA or something like that, like. Like it makes a it it makes a decent enough difference to me between projecting a guy for being twenty four percent owned versus twenty nine percent owned, and I'm angry about that if I'm wrong by five percent. Right, the average person may think that's that's crazy, but that 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 may mean mean three more dupes or five more dupes or or one less dupe. And I, I didn't play that lineup because I thought it would be more dupe. Right, the, the the individual percent actually matters when there's only so many players in the field, only only so many players you can pick from. Right, and 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 it's amplified. I, I I in MMA particularly, maybe Showdown also in in the mid range and not in the high and the low end. Yes, yeah, like like for, like, for, like 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 Romanoff, right? Like right. fifty five to sixty five. Who cares? Whatever. But or even like when I won Mike Jackson, if he's five percent or eleven percent, that doesn't matter too much. But when you get nineteen to like thirty one percent, that in between range, if you're on one end or the other, that makes a huge difference because that's where a lot of differentiation is done. Right, but sometimes even even if you're directionally accurate, sometimes you end up in a better situation than you are. I remember what a couple of slates called the uh, the Terrence McKinney slate. Oh God, yeah. Where he was like, like why why is why why is he like fifty five percent owned? I was beside myself. That's right, and I I over project. I mean, to me, I over I think I over projected his ownership to be like forty two percent. Right, I had him as the most the highest owned dog, and I was going to have very little of him. But when I saw 55, I'm like, wow, I almost want to get rid of like a couple of the lineups that I have them in now currently. <laughs> yeah, just completely fade them, right? Yeah, right, right. Exactly. I mean, probably, I, I rarely do that. Uh, right, stuff. Right. Stuff. But, but to me that, I mean, you're, you're, I mean, I'm, you're preaching to the choir when, when you're, you're talking to me, like, like, yeah, I, I, upon upload at whatever lock time is an MMA or NFL showdown or any of those types of contests. I mean, I I know how well I played one yes. minute after the slide. I mean, I just I I could look and know, uh, and we'll talk about the unique because I have a I have a slightly I've altered my my perception of how to play MMA a little bit, which is maybe okay. I'm trying I'm trying to get in between the two lines, and we'll, we'll talk about that. That's the main okay. thing I wanted to talk about. But it, people don't a lot of average players don't understand. It's like I. I know, I know how well I played upon upload before the first fight starts. Like, yeah. and they go like, well, how, like, I just look, I put in my own, basically what I do is that I, I look at uniques. I look at under fives. I look at under tens. And I also, if I have the time, I'll do this afterwards, a slate, look at which lineups were duped more than others that I have. Like, we'll get into yes. like, like there's a difference between a lineup that I have that is duped six times that I expected to be duped 14 times yeah. and a lineup that's duped three times that I expected to be unique. Right. Yeah, that's that's the, the most tilting, right? That's, or right. Like, that's the you're most. Like, and you're like, I don't even understand why this is duped 10 times. Right. He's like, I definitely thought this would be unique. Why in the hell do nine other people have this lineup? Yeah. That's the most tilting for sure. Right. Well, we had this, that's like two, two weeks ago 
that I, I was I was in discords telling here's the I have one lineup that if you're playing large field GPP that you just you absolutely avoid you do not play whatsoever was that Chimaev card three high three high the, the three, three high because you can only pair it with the three lowest that are in a fight stack and yeah. <laughs> and it was due 418 times in the contest right uh right and I, I said this is a ne- this is the most negative EV lineup in the entire contest and here here's a, here's another concept that some average players fail to to understand. If what Brian, would you agree with this statement? You you would much rather lose on a slate uh where the where the where the lineup that won was duped a hundred times than lose on a slate where there was a solo winner. Oh, uh, nine no, 100 times out of 100, right? Because if it was unique, it's like shit, I could have gotten that unique. Right. If it was if it's duped, you know, 100 times, I'm never going to play that. Or even like last week. Right. The the, the main event fight stack. I'm never going to play that. And if it's duped, it's duped. It wins. And then and you're not like rooting against other people. Right. I want to see other people win when I'm not winning. But if it's a 100K winner and it's not me, I get furious because that could have been me. Where if it's a 21K split, let those people take it. Uh, I'll, I'll wait. In, I'll wait in the dark. And so it's time for, for my unique win. Right. And even this past week, no one even had the optimal. True. Yeah, true. Right, which it's seemed true. odd. Which it always blows my mind. On like eleven fight card is is small enough that, like, I expect the nuts to be the winning the winning lineup. Fifteen fight yeah. card, I, I I I could absolutely see the optimal not being played. But like right. sometimes we have, I, I think, didn't we have we had a nine fight card? I remember, like maybe in in the fall, where the optimal was like a fight stack of like one of like the fourth fight on the slate because. Yes. And literally, and no one played yeah. it. And it's like, even then, I'm like, on a nine-fight card for no one to have the nuts seems yeah. always insane to me. But to me, that shows two things. One, that how many, how much edge there is in MMA since yeah. there's so many people duping each other. Uh, too too much. Yes. Uh, and number two, that it's much more easy to make uniques than you think it is. It is. And it's funny you say that because... I so obviously we have a discord and I chatted and I sweat the fights in there during discord and we have a user who's a top MMA player and he messaged me out of the blue one day he, he runs a lot of simulations and I, I know there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion about simulations I don't personally do any simulations but this one one user does simulations and this was during the the winter break where he had a couple of weeks off from MMA and he messaged me and he says you know I was running some numbers looking at things and out of all the, the users at 150 max last year you have the highest chance of winning when the winning lineup is not optimal. So he called it like a non-optimal win opportunity, some crazy metric, right? Mm-hmm. Basically saying when there's a lot of chaos on the, on the card and no one finds the optimal, of all the 150 maxers, I'm the most likely to have the winning lineup, which I thought was super interesting. I think it kind of plays into how I play MMA and even some of these other sports. Right. It's. I mean, it's, it's, it's very similar to any other sport where it's like you win – when the chalk fails less than you, your, your methodology and my methodology also, I mean, it's all play whoever you want, you know, all the, all the tropes and whatever <laughs> is that like, try to win the low scoring slates, right? Try, try, don't win the slate when, when, when the, the, the big, the heaviest, the most owned, you know, favorite wins and scores 120 and the two highest owned dogs win and score a hundred plus like, like there's only so many combos left of the three other slots that like there's no line there's no lineup with all three of them that's under 10 dupes. Right. 
and you're just like those you're not you're not playing for those slates like you're just no. you're just simply you're playing for the slates that chaos happens and not just i mean we could call it like what the mike jackson one romanoff fight gets canceled right that, mike that's, jackson that's wins a dq right sure. that's yeah. that's chaos chaos <laughs> yeah right uh but just when when the un when the unexpected when the it it's not about being the most probable it's about being the most profitable and you're and you have no problem to go along with the emotional bankroll aspect of like I'm playing 150 chaos lineups and if there's no chaos I'm fine with losing 90% of my money because when I do win you've had what three solo 100k wins in the past what year yeah just about a year last february was the the first one and I had a FanDuel one too for 50k but yeah so basically three separate 100k wins and I think there's a couple of factors that are super important First, you mentioned when the high-owned fighter goes off, and this is MMA, but it could be, like even this past week in PGA, John Rahm was 50%, right? Mm -hmm. and, which is like a, the ultimate game theory approach on how you play this. Like, and for me, I've done, I, I've played those guys before. It's like, well, what if I go way over the field? Or what if I even match the field? Or get close and I, I get different everywhere else? And on those slates, my uniques suffer most of the time. But two, even when those guys play well, I still lose. And so my thought process is, if I'm going to lose anyways, why the hell would I keep playing the 50% fighter? Why not just play for the slates where they, because if they're going to win and I still lose, I have no benefit. But if they, if they fail, now I have so much more benefit in my favor. And in order to play that approach, not only do you have to have the emotional bankroll, but you have the, the actual bankroll as well, because there's going to be so many slates where you go in between and don't win that you have, in order to be comfortable fading those spots or playing the most chaotic lineups, it has to be such a small portion of your bankroll that you're okay with doing that over and over and over and over again, knowing that over the long haul, it's going to hit. But like we said at the top of the show, you have to live long enough to realize that EV. Right. But that's the, that, to me, that's the misconception that people have about being a nit. For example, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a very well-known nit, yeah. but it doesn't, but I'm, it's, there's a difference between playing a small percentage of your bankroll and playing conservative lineups. Like yes. the reason why I have no problem playing the game theory driven approach of, you know, stacking against the 40% owned SP2 on some baseball slate, right? Playing all those types of lineups is because, well, when I'm playing a half a percent of my bankroll, uh, minus 90% ain't that big of a deal. You're playing 7%, 10% of your bankroll. Like, I don't, I don't have the emotional bankroll for that. Right, you personally. You, you can't have, I mean, it's just not feasible. There's some sports where I'll play 7%, but, and I've done a, I've always been aggressive, whether it was poker or sports betting, I've always been aggressive on pushing edges, but it comes to a point, especially when in DFS, because DFS is so many slates in so many days that, you know, you play 7%, that's, you know, 15 slates in your bust if you, if you return 0% or whatever. So I've done a greater job, or at least I put a, a, a greater effort into the past six months or so, really mixing in more smaller field contests, more conservative return type contests, in addition to these large field chaotic 150 max types lineups, mostly because, well, financially it's easier, right? Like I found bigger edges in small field contests that I've been playing and pushing more. So it allows me, like I said, to not hit a 100K at the end of a downswing. I was actually on an upswing and hit 100K. So now it's a great start to the year, but just emotionally as well, right? It, it really wears on you when you go six, eight months without winning something big. And then when you do win, now you're barely green, right? It's just, there's, there's so many, the bankroll management, emotional management is such a huge part of being a successful player. In the smaller field contests, do you agree with me that the 
edge in those is that people tend to play too safely and that yes. you're exploiting that. But there's also an extreme that there's a line there. Like people take it the wrong way of like, well, in the smaller field, higher stakes stuff, the chalk is chalkier, tends to be chalkier. But like to play too contrarian, you're actually even more negative EV, right? So like there's a difference between like, I'm going to play all six of the biggest underdogs in the 555. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You are different. And all of those, maybe all those six underdogs are the most under-owned fighters, right? You go, they shouldn't be this low-owned because they're lower-owned here than they would be in the large field. But, like, the probability of that lineup, you don't, like, when that lineup's the nuts, like, you're winning the 555 by a clear 100 points <laughs> and you're not getting enough money for it. Like, you should be getting 100,000 for that lineup and you're yes. only getting 20,000 in the 555. So there's, like, a line there. But I, I, fi I find that in playing the 555, I'm much more likely to find one big leverage spot and then play, like, if you were to just go by default without any type of, like, analytical process of, like, like a lot of times I'm playing the the, the mid-priced favorite against the biggest, the, the most owned underdog on the slate and right. going, going, like, I don't need even 110 points out of this $8,800 fighter but this guy could score 86 points, and because 40% of the lineups are dead, like, I could still win. I, I'm not going to, obviously not going to win the large field with this lineup, but the 555, I could, I mean, like, I think that was a, I, I came in second in one uh, one for 10K with, like, a lineup that, like, literally only 3X'd in the large, like, like was, was like 486 placed in the large field contest, came in second because it's like, well, the two biggest underdogs lost. And like, and I had the two fighters that were against those two, and it's just that so many lineups fell down that that there you go, low low scoring enough, and you and you win. I mean, do do you what what type of approach do you embrace for the smaller field stuff? Because I'm assuming you're hand, you're more likely to hand build or like just meticulously select that type of lineup. Definitely, definitely, and I, there's so many so many angles to talk about here. The first thing I would say is. Yes, you do meticulously build for those contests. It's such a fine line between playing the chalk and playing and playing too crazy. There's a there's a certain amount just of uncertainty you need to inject into those types of lineups because, like you said, you don't need to be perfect. And that's also the reason why I don't mind playing the chalk in some of those contests. It depends, right? Like like a Romanoff last week. I had right, I, I played Romanoff in the five fifty five. Right, like that's 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 an easy ninety percent chance of ninety points. Playing Rom in small field was still probably fine in PGA this past week because he has such a high floor and. He could fail a little bit and you still win, right? But it's those other spots that you need to look at. And my approach, is it's a kind of a hacky approach. And I, I put more time in, I think, into those types of lineups than most pros do. I, like I said, I'm not simulating and I'm not, I'm not uh, building. I guess the best way to say it is I'm putting more effort into each individual lineup in those cases than I am in, in large field. I'm letting the builder run. I'm, I'm maybe tweaking after I'm setting a bunch of rules, but small field, I'm taking tons of time on each individual line because I've had uh, issues there in the past in my ROI shows where I'm just relying on my natural process and like, oh, this lineup looks good for this contest. Let's throw it in there where I'm, I'm literally have separate process for each contest I'm building. So for MMA on Saturday, I'll wake up, whatever, and I'll build my 150. And I'll set all those rules and I'll do that, set those aside. Now 
I'll enter another slate group and I'll specifically work on this hour building my six small field lineups for the 555. And it's a very different approach than my 150. And then if I have time, and most of the time I do, then I'll set aside, okay, what does the optimal cash lineup look like this week? And I'll start putting in rules in, in my builder and, and do things that way. But by separating it out individually, I found way more success. And I know for a fact, just by talking to a lot of the pros on my podcast and and listening to discords on Twitter that most pros don't do that. And I think that's a, a, where a big edge lies in small field. I'm smiling because like you've described my exact, you've, you've expressed, <laughs> you've, right, you've, you've described my exact process. It's just that I do all of that in reverse. Oh, all right. So determine like the cash lineup for like what, what is, because to me, that's like the most dupe line. Like these are the common, what's the, what's the cash lineup that's going to be played more. What's the two V two on it. Like you could determine like, like here, here's like the three lineups that I expect to see in double ups, probably more sure. this than that. Right. Because you have the lineups that are going to stack the main event, right, That in cash. And some people don't stack the main event in cash. So what which is the cash lineup that either could possibly yeah. play? So now I know what the combinations are. So now I could use that and go, what are what take four lineups, four guys out of the six. How many combinations of two V twos are there? And what are those lineups? Take yeah. three out of the six. What are the common? So I could see how many combinations of chalk lineups there are. So I know like what lineups to remove from my like 150 set type of type of thing. Nice. Right? I and like then that. then from that point I do my I do my small field stuff. I tip and I typically build five or six small field cuz I'll put one in the 200 3 max, I'll put one in the 100, I'll put one in the 555. So I'm not playing six in the 555, but sure. I'm playing like six lineups that have like a a ceiling of $10,000 yep. win Got type it. of type okay. of thing. Uh yeah, yeah. And then and for that like a lot of times I'm fading if I'm like in those six lineups, like, nope, not going to play this fight. Like this fight is over-owned. So just exit well, you out. Have to, you have to make the tough decisions there, right? Right. No, right. You got right. right exactly. You have, now you actually have to figure out what some, some floor ceilings for these fights are. Makes it right. Sure. Right. Well, and, and then also how much leverage, you know, like, it's like, okay, I'm going to take, because a lot of times in my, in my six lineups and single entry, I may be playing like, like both sides of a fight. It, it, it may be the type of thing where I know that I can't, that only one of this, these six lineups will survive. And if it does, and I'm right, I win first. And sometimes on other slates, I'm like, like I've, I these six lineups could all cash, right? Because yeah, the difference right. is, is like, let's say you build a lineup where it's like it's a 15 fight card, and you're like, well, I'm gonna play very similar guys. It's just that I'm gonna instead of the $9,200 fighter, I'm playing the $9,300 fighter, and instead of the $7,400 fighter, I'm playing the $7,500. Like they're all like two v twos, but like no between all six lineups, no outcome is against one another. And then there are some there are some slates where it's like uh, there's there's a fight that's underowned that I that is a high chance of the winner putting up a lot of points, and I'm building six lineups and three have one fighter and three have the other fighter, yeah. so it's like only one of them can win. So essentially, I'm I'm purposely saying that three out of six of my lineups are not going to have first place equity. Immediate, like upon the slate locking at that time, do, do, do you? Do you, do you put those into account or you do you try to make lineups that are l more more or less correlative when you're building out that those, that that six set? So I can't go too deep here because I do think it's a pretty big edge. And this is across all sports and, and building a handful of lineups because there is oh, basically how you want to think about your lineups if you're doing this, whether it's your six lineups, whether it's, you know, you're making 150 lineups, you're making 20 max or whatever it may be. You really have to think about your exposures from a player perspective and a dollar amount perspective. 
in the lens of a portfolio of lineups, right? So if I'm making 150 in the big one, six small field and a cash lineup, that's 156 lineups. I may have 20% of a guy in my 150, but I may have them in 40% of the small field and I may have them in my cash lineup. And when you look at the dollar amount exposure, I have way higher exposure to that guy than my 157 would indicate. So someone may ask me, oh, how much do you have at this guy? It's like, oh, it's 20%, but in dollars, he's like, 47% of my of my exposures. And I really think that there is an optimal way to play a set of, of three to six lineups. And I'll just say this, that the information is out there if you go study some of it. And when I say I don't do simulations, I don't like simulate a slate and say, oh, this guy is optimal X percent of the time versus his ownership. Mm -hmm. But I have, during the off seasons, I've run these types of simulations where if I do this with my lineups, what does my outcome look like? When I was struggling and I wasn't getting as many uniques as I, I wanted to after the two year, two year, uh, two year post milli, I started running some simulations thinking, okay, if I play three captains in my 150, what does my ROI, expected ROI look like? If I play six captains, if I play 12 captains, if I leave X amount of salary versus Y amount, if I, if I literally put a, a garbage trash 1% player in every single lineup, what does my ROI look like? If I put a defense in every lineup, what does that look like? If I fade to the defense in every lineup, what does that look like? And so by running those types of thought exercises, I was able to get a good amount of information to guide my lineup building process for all sports. And I've done that for all sports. And again, I put a lot more thought into that. And I think that's where my edge lies. Because again, I'm not going to outmath most of the top players but I can outwork and outthink them in a different way. And by thinking about things differently than they are, I'm automatically being a little bit contrarian. So. Right. I mean, I, I'm, the, the fact that you're doing things that like you, I feel, I feel like we we're, we're I feel like we we live together or something. <laughs> right. Like you may be, and, and you, and to be fair, I expect probably experiment way more than you do. I try to, and also I, I try to, I do a lot of things by proxy. Like you said, you're not running simulations. I don't run simulations either. I do a lot of my stuff in Excel. I'm not that great at Excel stuff, but I'm good enough. Get Especially in MMA where it's small. Like the amount of lineups that you can make is not so much smaller that doing those types of things is much more tenable than in baseball or something. Yes. like. Yes. Yeah. Right? So like I try to find proxies. I, I try to be directionally accurate. So I run uh, like for, for duplication, like I've, and I've explained it on 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 videos for Roto Grinders that I about a year about eight months ago I changed my approach from an exposure driven like how do I get to the the most unique most highest expected lineups through you know piecing combinations together to incorporating it directly into the projection Got right it. to could basically like include the the owner basically I want to include the ownership the median or mean projection as well as like the the 90th percentile outcome like inside of a thing where like the highest the highest ev lineup should be the lineup that has the and then you just hack the the lineup builder where it's just like the projection is that number so it's like if i have a number that's 7.36 that's technically the highest ev lineup because it has the most underowned player compared to the projection probability, the betting lines, and duplicate and least least likely to be duplicated. 
type of thing. Gotcha. Like it's so all like, built like, into game. Like, like, like Romanov, for example, right? His, his median projection would be like 91 points in, in projections. But because he's 55% owned, that number's lower for you the way you build or in, in those types of projections because of the ownership. and the No, but not because the, but once you, once you weigh in the betting line, mm-hmm. like the, pro, the, the correlations between the round one and inside the distance lines are so, are so high, the R squared for yeah. hundred plus point scores. Like I weigh them very heavily over fight data. So like Romanoff at minus 650 inside the distance and minus 210 round <laughs> one, he was under out. Like he was literally under own. Like in my, in my <laughs> if, if I were to run 150, like I ran 150 so I, uh, to experiment, I always run 150 straight. Just mm-hmm. one fit. Like if I don't do anything and I just go directly just by this leverage score that I have, mm-hmm. Romanoff appeared in 100% of lineups. So that shows to me that he's under that shows to me that he's underowned gotcha. relative to his ceiling. But I have to give you credit also because uh I bef- I had to incorporate some type of fight data that isn't mean based into into my account. Because what would end up happening uh like back in July, it was it was weird. Obviously, I switched my I created the sheet and like literally the next day I won one hundred and sixteen thousand dollars. Oh, it really justifies the process. There. Right. It's kind of justified right there. Uh, it was a three way shop on a pay-per-view card. So but I'll, t- I'll take that. Uh, yes. The problem was, is that I was my my sheet was rating out guys like like uh, Rosenstruck, like the knockout, the low volume knockout artists. Because they would have like, it would be plus 130 inside the distance. But it's like, like the chances of them getting 130 points are very low because to, they, they'll get 100 by a first round knockout. And if they don't knock them out in the first round, they ain't getting 100 points. Nope. Right? But they're inside the distance line and the round one lines are very high. So I would get that having rated higher than Marab Devalishvili, who inside the distance, plus 275. But it's like his like, dude... His in a three-round decision, like he scores 140. <laughs> right, exactly. So so yeah. I had to find a proxy for that. And mean projections are just too close to... They're all normally distributive. Like around the industry, like you go and it's, it's like... So the, right, it's so bad. Right, and these fighters don't have normal distributions. So no. so you know what, what I use as the proxy? For that? Instead of scraping fight data and doing it myself... Yeah, I'm curious. I don't know. What do you got? I use the OF index. Huh. Uh, I believe I've heard of that. <laughs> but it does incorporate fight data. So Right. Well, I, well that. that's the reason why I do, because I know that you, you incorporate fight data. And that essentially what the OF index is, is that in a win, how high does this pers- this fighter score in relation to other fighters on the slate? And the disparity between like Romanoff was like 169 <laughs> and the lowest fighter was like 53. And yeah. if you just went by ceiling projections, which are normally distributive typically... You'd get something like, okay, Romanov's ceiling is 134, but this other guy is like 110. And it's like, that that isn't true. Help you. Right. Because it's just as proportional as the mean or median projection. So I need something exactly. that was much more like bimodal in a way. And I, I'm not doing all this fight data stuff myself. And I'm not going to watch, ta- I'm not watching tape. I'm not seeing, oh, Grant Dawson, he wrestles. So obviously his... His upside is higher. Mazzani, she, re- I mean, we all know DraftKings store scoring's favors high volume ground and pound wrestlers more than, than stand up strikers. So it's like, but instead of me doing it myself, I always try and like, can I find a directionally accurate enough proxy? And I just like, let me, let me, 
I mean, I aggregate ownership projections across the industry anyway, so I'm using that from your site as well as part of my multiple amount. Uh, And I don't, we'll talk about ownership projections also, but, but just having the OFI in my, like now I have to experiment how much I should be weighting it. That's, 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 that's (laughs) the problem. Not not that much. It's not, it's not that predictive. Don't worry about it. Just just a little bit into your projection. That's fine. You don't need it anymore. And in fact, I would say you don't even need it anymore. Blender, just don't. You don't just don't. Oh, you're, you're trying. You're trying to get me to not use it because yeah, that's not that important. No, it's not, that's important. not important, right? I'm, tr- I'm trying to. I'm trying to pimp your pimp your wares. No, I, I appreciate that. And again, we put a lot of effort into that, and specifically into the, the MMA model for sure. And uh, yeah, that was the goal. That, that was really the goal in creating that specific model. It's the goal for us in, in all of our models that we created. And I say R because my brother does a lot of the, the grunt work on the data side. I was a computer science major in college. I did not finish my major. I failed out of my computer science major. I have enough understanding to look at code and know what's going on uh, beyond that I, I can't fix anything right i can't write code myself so I, I have a decent understanding but our goal honestly when we started occupy when i first started um, playing dfs was i know every projection in the industry is at some point driven by vegas projections in some way whether it's money line total knockout percentage whatever maybe how can i find inputs that lead to some type of predictive scoring that does not include vegas because I know everybody else is doing that. If I can get somewhat close, I'm going to have a naturally contrarian projection system and now add in my style of play. I'm playing so much differently than everyone else most of the time that I don't have to play because the way I'm doing it, I feel like I'm playing optimally based on the information that I have. Most of the time, I'm really not trying to try and quote unquote, trying to get contrarian. I'm just playing with the information that I have and the style that I have. And I don't have to think too hard about what I'm doing on each slate. Right. Me, I, I just, I use ownership. Like I've, it's, it's, it, it's Pat, Pat's myself on the back. Uh, I, I get the ownership from every site that offers it. And the, the R, right. Now I aggregate that, but I also do my own ownership and my own, own and then this is, this is the reason why I don't, uh, I will never sell my own ownership is because it has no mathematics. It has no like core, like I can't, like it's, it's not something that can, it's not going to equal, like, dude, it's not even going to equal 600. Like, it's I mean, all like, by feel. You're doing it by feel. Right. It's all, it's all by time. looking at ownership around the industry and going, uh, yeah, whoever's projecting Christian Jocko to be 22% owned is just wrong. Yes. It's just, I, it's, say, that, I say that all the time. It's like, can I just take my, the money I'm going to play on this slate and bet against that site that their ownership projection is wrong? Because especially in MMA, right? Other sports they, and, and the most common sports, right? It's going to be there. But like, I'll, I'll look and I'll say, there's zero chance that is happening. There's no way that ownership is going to be right. <laughs> but then you adjust and then I go through and I'll go and I'll put my own ownership in and go, yeah. I think this guy will be this. I think this guy will be this. We're under... The industry is under projecting this guy because I because I'm listening to podcasts. I'm lo- I mean sure. just going through. I, I'm looking for the human factor of like 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 dude like Arlovsky is not going to be 16 percent on like he's he's just, he's just he's not he's gonna be under t- he's gonna be 10 at most right <laughs> and I think maybe even eight but then once you start putting him at eight you have to go well where does the ownership go and then you yeah. start bumping up and you go Grant Dawson 28%. It's like get get out of here. More like 35%. Right? Yes. Right. But I'm saying but if you know how people react to stuff, you could you're putting it in. But the thing is is that that people are using those ownership numbers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that yeah. that yeah. so in aggregate, I mean there there are there are most slates 
most slates, not many, but most slates, the aggregate the aggregate has a higher R squared than all of the individual sources. Sure. Because well, sometimes we'll get a slate where I mean, like one site will project a guy for thirty-two percent own, and the other guy, another site, will have it at fourteen. And like that, this one of them is going to be way off. I mean, yeah, something like it's not that. Be the average of those, it's, it's right? And it's probably not even going to be the average of those, right? Right. But the R squared, because I've done it since since uh, back in uh, July, my R squared is the highest. Nice. Right. That's so huge. like, it- so I now I can't. It's not dramatically enough different than the aggregate because sometimes I'm wrong a little bit more because I'm doing it on, on like not segmenting out. Well, on high price fighters, I'm a little less and like that. So I just basically weigh my, my, my own personal field projections as the highest weight in the aggregate of all of them. So I get a little bit closer to mine, but not all the way to mine with the aggregate. And then I compare, and then once, obviously, the slate locks I put in the actual ownership, and then once I put in the actual ownership, my sheet will tell me what the actual what the scores based on my thing should have been, and then I could look, and I got then now I and I even do this after the slate. I go, if I would have known that these were the actual scores, how would my lineups have been different? That's smart. And then a lot, and a lot of times, well, I would put it in. And even and my lineups being different actually produce worse results. I mean, like obviously it depends on the results of the slate, but there are certain slates where, like I remember Felipe Linz, like I had projected like twenty two percent ownership, and he ended up coming in at thirty. Yeah. And I had him in a ton of lineups, but it's like even though he, he won, I wouldn't have played him a ton if I knew he was thirty. No, right? <laughs> I wouldn't. No, won. I wouldn't have played him as much as I did had I known he was thirty. But right. it turns out he scored ninety one points, and like it was better that I played a lot more of him. But that's not. But you understand the difference, and mo- and good players of the. I look at that as a, as a as a mistake, not the the yeah sure yes forty four percent lens is a lot if he's thirty percent owned and he should be twenty eight percent owned as an efficient metric, but that's what at 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 one minute past late lock I could look and go, go if I win with a lens lineup I mean when I won one hundred sixteen thousand dollars I won with Luke K. And I had Luke in like 6% of my lineups. I had him as one of the most overrun fighters on that slate. <laughs> and he was in the winning lineup, but the yeah. lineup itself had the proper, only because it was a K, it was a slate where a lot of people lost. And, but Luke was one of the chalkier pieces that actually won and was in the optimal. I just had him with like four contrarian pieces. So like, right. like you're, 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 you're simulating more of your portfolio and I'm thinking more simulation on like individual lineups of like based on the leverage of this lineup, would have this made would this have made my 150? And like on that Felipe Linz thing, I went back and I go, well, out of these, out of, I, I think I had like like 62 or uh, yeah, about 62 Linz lineups, and like 18 of them had I had it at 30 percent ownership, mm-hmm. shouldn't have made my 150 set. And some of those lineups were profit, and some of those were profitable, but yeah, but it's not about the results, right? So right, it's a, right. You got things beforehand, and right? But you understand, I'm looking, I'm trying to look at the lineup level, and not necessarily the portfolio level. To me, portfolio is more about like just risk tolerance, more than anything. That I'm not going to sure. just lock people in, or whatever. So like it, it just it's just weird for me that that we both use a very similar process, and come up with different. And come up with different lineups, but you I mean, can. That's the, beauty, that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Like we both play, we both have an idea of what we want to do. We we execute it a little bit differently. And yeah, I look at lineup. I mean, lineup level data is 
extremely important too. And I, I look at that as well. And, you know, I'll say there's nothing more tilting than you're, you're sweating your lineups. You see a lineup that already has three fighters that fought, all three are low on, all three have gone off. You're like, all right, now I'm rolling. I just need this chalk piece to actually win for a change. You're actually rooting for the chalk and then they fail. You're like, well, this is why I hate chalk so much. Right. <laughs> because the one time I actually need it doesn't go off. Now, the question I have for you as far as that we talk about uniques, okay? I I used to be in, in the camp of uniques are God, right? I want uniques. But with the realization that not all uniques are good, right? Yes. Playing the six lowest, uh, you know, the bi biggest underdogs on an MMA slate and leaving 6,000 on the table, probably a negative EV lineup even if it is unique, right? Same for Showdown, right? I'm going to play all the $200 guys, right? I mean, like, come on. Like... When it's, oh, I'm going to play all the bench guys in an NBA showdown. <laughs> right. Maybe in USFL. If you'd play USFL showdown, maybe you, you could win mind. that one. Because <laughs> no one knows who's playing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've, I've tried, by using betting lines as a proxy, like I said, I'm not simulating anything. I've theorized, at least from using that as a proxy, which is not, is not, you know, precise, that... We said before, the barbell of duplication, if I want to call it that, like, it's a bigger mistake. Like, it's a less mistake. If you play a lineup that is duplicated 15 times, like, there's not as much of a difference between it being duplicated 15 or being duplicated 16 times. Right. As the difference of playing a lineup that is on, is duped three times instead of two times. Yeah. Right. So like, for instance, if you think this lineup is unique and it ends up being duped four times, that, right. Well, that, but that is a bigger mistake than playing a lineup that, you know, is going to be duplicated maybe 10 or 12 times. And it ends up being duplicated 13 times. And it's yeah. like, like the difference between that one X, cause you're now splitting, right. That, that 13th place is only an extra like 800 bucks. Right. Yeah. But up towards the top, like you don't want, like you don't want that. So I've 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 gone through what I've attempted to do, and I and obviously uh, this past late, I I I knew upon upload that I was I was I was negative EV because fucking that fight got canceled and and it and, and I I didn't have time to to do I I I did everything all day I I spent four hours, everything was beautiful I did everything and everything like that and then the Candelario Tyra fight. And now I have to change everything. It's always after you finish your lineups, every right. single time, every but, single time. But the thing is that I've theorized that there are that there are lineups that are duplicated, typically not more than ten times, but lineups that are duplicated somewhere in the five to ten range that are high have a higher expected value than than ones that are either way too unique, obviously the ones that even you don't play, or ones that are like duplicated twice but their chances of winning are still very low that I'm more inclined now to aim for under tens and under fives over pure uniques. And I believe in the past couple of slates, I've, I've still gone too far. I'm, I'm, I'm building two duplicated lineups, but I think there's a, there's a line somewhere where if you're just like, let's say, in 150 lineups, I, I mean, I look at your stuff. You'll have 150 lineups. You'll have 127 uniques, right? And you'll have 148 under fives, 
right? Or something like that. And I'll be like, okay, like this is, this is for you. That's beautiful. Right. That type of thing. Then I'll look at mine and it'll be like, I have 150 lineups. I have, uh, uh, 116 under fives and like 26 uniques, right? Like something like that. And I'll look at my under tens and have most of my lineups under tens. Right. And, I feel that on some of those slates that my portfolio set could be higher expected value than yours and have lower variance because I'm mixing in some lineups that do chop eight ways. And I I am, you know, yay, great. I have uh, $18,000 or something like that. Well, you almost never get into those spots. Either you're winning first solo or something or, you know, with maybe one other person. And I'm doing that a little less often but I'm getting a, I'm getting more more money back when I lose that like over the course like I've I've done this over the course of like like a ten thousand simulations that you're still plus EV right, right. but your but your the distribution of your graph is like All fucking ridiculous <laughs> and mine is yeah. much more smoother and at the end of the day some in some simulation methodologies you come out ahead and some I come out ahead right. uh but it's weird to say that like I'm not in aiming for n- not caring as much about uniques that maybe that under five dupes is, is I don't want to say a better goal. Cause we're talking about lineups and portfolios or whatever. Have yeah. you, have you looked into this or, or are you still like you're good at making uniques? So instead of having to adjust your process to be like, well, how many under five should I be allowing? How many under 10 should I be allowing? That you've obviously, you've shown an ROI that as long as you're willing to handle the swings, it's like, why why fix what ain't broken? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because over the past year or so, I've really backed myself into that. Because if you listen, when I won the Millie, I went on uh, Davis Maddox podcast, talked with Colin Drew, and I was <clears throat> adamant about uniques. Right. That was my approach back then. And mm-hmm. Things changed. And obviously, as, as smart people, we should take new information and change how we think about things. Right. So three years later, I've thought about that a lot more and I have backed myself into it. And it really is slate specific. There are some slates I'll walk in, I'll build lineups. I'm like, well, this is easy. I can, I can get 150 weeks without even being bad. Right. This is fine. But this past slate, like you just said, was a perfect example of I made my 150. And I'm tweaking for ownership and whatnot. And I'll look and I'll be like, this lineup, I have a, a duplication calculator for MMA. And it's like, this will probably be duped around eight times, but it's such a good lineup, right? And I don't have a, a very mathematical approach about what a good lineup is, right? But I'm like, this is a good lineup. I don't need to change this to be a unique lineup because it's so much worse and unlikely to win where I'm okay with it. So this past slate, where like you said, I normally have 127 and 150. This slate was 67 uniques, but it was 150 under 10. And when I saw that, I was actually happy because that's the approach I wanted to take on this specific slate because 55% fighter, only 11 fights. And I thought there was only a certain way you can play it. So I think it's, I, I think the key takeaway here is you have to be flexible in your approach, understand what has worked and what can work. And part of this past six month transformation for me is if I don't have to have such a high risk approach, a high variance approach, don't take it. Look for more low variance ways that the field isn't doing. I think that's kind of what you just described, but I back myself into it. And I do think it's something that has helped me be even more profitable over the last year or so. Right. Cause me, me and Neil talked about it. I think on last week's show or one, one of the past two shows about slate context. Yeah. Like 
I like the slates. My fa- and I'm assuming you're the same. You're the same way. You would have much like this past slate would have been much a little bit better if Romanoff wasn't on the card. It'd be fantastic. I don't, I don't want a 55 percent fighter on any card. And God forbid a pay per view like the the Volkanovski card. I was like, I have no chance of winning this card. I already know going in. Of course, it's going to be the highest entry fee slate of the of the year so far because the five 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 is ten max and it's twenty five dollars in the one fifty and. I feel like I'm drawing dead going in just because I know there's so many 50% fighters. The way this slate's probably going to play out is probably not going to be great for me. Whereas I love the the 13 fight, 12 fight apex cards with a bunch of unknown fighters where no one gets above 40%. Now I can easily play optimally, have 150 uniques, and know I have a really good chance of winning. It's no surprise that my three wins, and if four wins if you include my FanDuel win, we're on non-pay-per-view cards because those are the cards I know for a fact. I know exactly how to play. I don't have to get crazy. Whereas on pay-per-view, I kind of have to manufacture it a little bit. So I'm not really looking for it from a DFS playing perspective. I'm not looking forward to the UFC event this weekend. It, it, you're the opposite of me. I do the best on the pay-per-view cards. Oh, yeah, because you're your you're three-way chop was pay-per-view, right? Right. Well, well, also, I like the more fights, the better. True. And also on pay-per-view cards, the typically the fights are closer. Like, to me... The context of a slate, uh, the biggest variable to me on slate context is the difference between the win odds uh, and the salaries. So like on the Chimaev card, for instance, we had what? Him, Pedro, like we had like guys minus 800 at the top that it's like the likely, like the the optimal lineup is more likely to spend most of the salary because of that. Now on this past slate, if he took Romanov off, what Phillies minus two twenty five, and he's the most expensive fighter. Like those are the slates where some forty eight three lineup could win because all the fights are close. So that's why on like pay per view cards, I I enjoy those cards because it gives me more options. We have more close fights. So when it's like, oh yeah, yeah, this guy's clear. Like we'll, we'll have Michael Chandler coming up right next week against Tony Ferguson. Is he really worth ninety six hundred? Like is I don't know, right? I mean, like Probably like. Not. But the thing is, is that the more you add these nine K fighters to the slate, the more likely people are like, "Well, why am I gonna, why am I gonna leave nine hundred on the table and play the eighty five hundred dollar fighter that is less likely to win? Right. Why don't I just pay up there?" So, like to me, it's so much more, it's so much easier to get unique while still not losing much expected value by like look at this past slate. No, if all you had to do is play Levy over Romanov and leave six hundred on the table. Solo on an 11, like, and there's no reason, like, Levy, if you look individually between Nate, not in Levy and Romanoff, and you go, how often does, does Levy actually outscore Romanoff? It's like, not 0%, not, not 0%, but you know, you've heard on so many shows the past, you know, the past week that like, dude, Romanoff's going to destroy him, but destroying him in the first round, dude, if he takes him down, submits him a minute and 12 into the first round. That's like 97 points. It's like, like, yeah. like that yeah. you could visually, like, you don't even have to do math. You could just visualize how the most expensive fighter on the slate by far could, he scored 112 and he wasn't optimal. I mean, like, like he ended up in the winning line because he was so high owned. So like, like I, I, I like looking at the slate context of that, of what, how likely is the optimal lineup using all of its salary, using left of its salary? What's the salary range? I like when the, the optimal salary range is somewhere between 49 and 49.5. Like okay. where it's not 48 or anything like that. You build a lot those of those types tricky. of lineups. I know, right? but those get tricky. Those get tricky fast. And 
And again, that's that's slate dependent as well, right? Because two slates ago, when the Romanov fight happened, I had a lot of sub 49K lineups in there just because of, I, as I was building, I couldn't get my exposures right unless I lowered the salary. And I started mm-hmm. thinking about, well, how can these types of lineups win? But the other reason, going back to the pay-per-view really quickly, the other reason I don't like pay-per-view cards as much, generally there are more established fighters on those cards. Very rarely do you have a card of, five fighters making their debut six fighters in their second fight whereas on these apex cards we get that a lot and the, the range of outcomes are so much wider and the projections are much more based on their their vegas odds and the vegas odds are much more proficient because there's so much data on these fighters but when you get two fighters ufc debut, i mean literally anything can happen right we have these guys fighting from different parts of the world we don't actually know what their approach is going to be in the fight. The Vegas odds, sure, one guy might be minus 200, but there could be tons of variance in those odds. And that's where, first of all, that's where the OF index comes in so much and the, the charting that I do. But I love those fights because the ownership condenses in places where I know they probably shouldn't. And we'll have underdogs that are, by Vegas odds, look terrible, but I know that their range of outcome, if they win, is so much higher than some of the other underdogs around them. Whereas we get into the the pay-per-view cards, we get established veterans as underdogs, as favorites. And for me, it's just hard to to creatively envision how some of these lineups fail. So that that's just my personal approach. And it, again, it comes back to, to range of outcomes and, and what I'd like to see happen when, when the expected doesn't happen. Right. And you, so it we uh, similar, but the opposite way. So from what I could tell, like, those those types of exploitations are more underdog focused, right? The line is off, right? So it's like people are overrating one guy over the other. I I like the pay-per-view cards because the larger the slate is, I get ownership on the fav the, on the favorites that no one's like like I won a whole bunch of money up with Miranda Maverick on the, what two months a month or two ago or whatever. Those are my favorites, yeah, I love those. Right, because people underplay the female fighters. And they and you look and you look like look, look at my I had tons of Jotko yesterday, or, or or Saturday. Like I like the things where everyone is if they're gonna play a guy in the nine K range, they're gonna play one of these two guys, and yeah. all these other people are gonna be under owned. So it's like I don't care about the under. Like to me, it's not about the number of underdogs that win. It's right. can this past late can any of the nine K fighters outscore Romanov? I want those lineups, right? Can they always can? Yeah, right. So like I. You're relying on the fact that no one knows anything. Maybe this guy shouldn't even be a minus 180 favorite. Yeah. And the underdog should actually be the $8,800 guy, which is more of a more of a, a price salary exploitation of like you're relying on the fact that these salaries, because no one knows anything, are are off. And sure. me, I'm just relying on the fact that, that people over, like there's no reason why this $9,100 fighter is 32% owned and this $9,000 fighter is 11% owned just for the difference of plus 160 versus plus 280 on the inside right, of the distance. If they're going to win the fight 67% of the time, 70% of the time, right? If you just go by whatever the win probability is mm-hmm. based on the money line, right? You're going to tell me that this fighter, if he's 12% owned or she is 12% owned, that 12% of the time that they win or whatever that math is going to be, right? Like they're only going to be uh, a great play that small sliver of the time that mm-hmm. they win. No, it's just not true. And for me, like Casey O'Neill was a great example mm-hmm. where it was like the ultimate, like it was, I couldn't have asked for a better spot. And, and of course I won the hundred K on that slate because I'm glad I was, I was, it was justified because you get low owned fighter, you get female fighter, low KO odds, 
super low owned, but because I charted and saw how the type of fight she has and she has no data, that if she wins, she's gonna absolutely smash because of her grappling style. And I get that in, and so I'm like, okay, 45% Casey O'Neill exposure when she's 18%. It's like, that's the fight you wanna have. I want another one with um, Castaneda, and he was an 8% as a favorite. Mm-hmm. It's like, you and you talk to people, and it's like, well, you look at the, the fight matchup, he doesn't have that much upside, might lose. But to me, the thing is, you literally cannot fade a, a, a sub 20% favorite in MMA just because of the volatility of it's a freaking fist fight. Like things happen. If he wins, it's kind of an exponential. Once once the, the fight starts to turn, and because projections can't capture that, right? You get, you get a knockdown, all of a sudden, your chance of getting a slate breaking score just skyrockets. So all it takes is one little thing to happen in a fight, and the guy goes from an 8% optimal to. 50% optimal, right? It's, 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 it's crazy to me. And then sometimes you get the opposite way of like, oh, if th- this guy is going to get eight takedowns or whatever like that, and then it's two wrestlers that stare at each other for three rounds. Yes. Right? Because yes. neither of them wants to go to the ground, and you're sitting there, right. and people are like, oh, you got to get exposure to this fight because there's going to be tons of exchanges on the ground or whatever, and it's like, nope. They stand up at or Or you never understand, like... You don't know what their game plan is. Sometimes they, sometimes some wrestler goes in and you go, if he wins, it's going to be on the ground and he decides to like, nope, I think I'm good on the feet and That's wins the a striking thing. base we decision. Don't, we, don't, we don't know what these fighters are going to go in to do, right? We know what they have done in the past, but these are humans that we're dealing with. Like, we wouldn't have played Shemaev if we'd have known his coach's game play ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Don't wrestle, don't brawl. It's like, well, we find that out. If Shemaev's going to sit back and just jab this whole time, we're not playing him, Right. But Chamayev threw out the window, started wrestling and brawling, and now he scores 100 points, right? So even if we know the information, things change in the fight. So for me, that, that it all comes back to there are so many things that we don't know going into a fight that that's what makes, for me, one of the most profitable sports. But I mean, you can say that about any sport, right? You don't know the context of what's happening in an individual or on a team level. Uh, do you consider the worst? I consider that this is, this is weird to say. I think MMA is the best, is one of the best sweats. Without question. Right. It's probably by far the best, yeah. It's so linear, and anything can happen in a matter of, like that. It's the greatest, yeah. But it also includes the two worst sweats in MMA. The two the main, worst sweats the main, in MMA. The main event fade? Yes. Yeah, that's number one. Let's get. <laughs> let's go to the second worst one, okay? The second worst uh, one is, uh, that obviously, if you have 150, you probably have every fight anyway. But uh, if you're playing, like, if you're a one-to-three lineup play- type of player... When there's a slate breaker in the first fight. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which seems to happen more often than not, by the way. But yes. Well, because yes. typically they put the most inexperienced fighters in that first fight and you never right. have high, high variance. But <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there are tons of people. I'm in a Discord where, you know, first fight up, you know, 118 okay. <laughs> for a, a $7,200 fighter. And it's yeah. like, I don't, I, I got zero out of 20. I'm dead. Like, yeah. well, you're dead to win first. Yes. But you could still win. And also in, in the smaller field stuff, you may even be, you may be live to win first anyway. You right? don't have to get, that, that, and that's the thing about small field too, right? Like the 9K fighters, if they all score within 20 points, it really doesn't matter, right? It's always mm-hmm. one or two spots that matter, right? So for me, it's like, I can play six Romanov or I can play three Romanov and three Feely or whatever. It's like, as long as they both score between 90 and 120, I have a chance at first in that contest. So it really doesn't matter. It's really those other spots lower that, that matter more for small field. Yeah, but you're right. The, the the number what you said, the main event fade, right? Because because typically all I'm on like I'm assuming with you, you're like me. The main event tends to get over is tends to be over owned, so I sure. tend to have less of it. And it, the one that I won one hundred sixteen thousand dollars is the the Gon Lewis 
one. Oh, that's a good one to fade at least. Well, well, no, no, no shit. That's why I that I had very little, I had very little of both fighters. And I'm like sitting there going, okay, the 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 next the lineup down that has gone needs like 119 points. So it's like at the volume of this fight. I'm not considering it that much. Yeah, I guess Gon could score 119 if he wrestles a ton. Derek Lewis needs like 86. And De- I mean, and with any Derek Lewis fight, it could end in one punch. Yeah. So you're sitting there in the first, like, I just want nothing to have. It's just like, please. Just stare at each other. Just stare at each other. <laughs> right. And my wife is there and I'm just like, and I'm just, I'm just standing there. I win $116,000 if nothing happens here. And I'm just like, just, they're, 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 they're just sitting about, like, that's the worst sweat because you're not, you're rooting for the opposite of anything to happen. It's so bad, dude. Right, it's so, so you're bad. sitting there, go- and then once, once it's like survived the first round, and then like Lewis, like only threw like two strikes. That's great. That's great. And then I'm going, I'm like, dude, now, now you know what I'm rooting for, like quick like, hail, just get it out of the way, right? Get it out of the way, right? Third, no, the third round. Once the second round ended, and the third yeah. round start, I'm like, dude, I hope someone wins right now. Like now, now yeah. I'm actually rooting for. Like it to because like I don't think any Lewis can't score eighty six and Gon can't score one ninety unless the, something fucked up happens in the next three rounds. So just get just fucking knock him out right Gon now. Just, Gon just starts grappling for no reason, racks right. takedowns, knockouts. It's like no, just get it over with. So like so my three one hundred k wins have all been main event fades. I've had so many sweats where I've actually needed the main event and it hasn't panned out. But the three main event sweats were Blades Lewis and the first round. I'm like just don't do anything. This is great. Uh, I go nuts, nearly hit my head on the ceiling when, when Lewis knocks him out in the second round because he only gets 80 points or whatever. Mm-hmm. Next one is uh, Caitlin Vieira, Misha Tate, right? Mm-hmm. They do nothing literally for five rounds. I'm just, I'm chilling back. I, I They they could have scored 90 points on a loss, but I was like, this pace is great. I don't need to worry about it. And the most recent one was the one I was most concerned about was Andrade and, and Lemos, where the winner only needed 99 or more. And I was like, this should be high paced. And I went nuts when... Standing arm standing, triangle, right? Only standing arm triangle in history in UFC. Like, well, I'll take it. Believe me. <laughs> right? I thought. I thought. I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna say Walker Santos. Oh, that was another good one too, right? Yeah, that. I mean, that was uh, maybe the worst main event I've seen since watching MMA in two years. Dude, the winner had like forty-seven in like a five-round <laughs> fight. Five so fight. <laughs> right? Yeah, but but it's the thing, right? So like, I've needed Poirier in the main event before. I've needed. Uh, I needed Oliveira before, right? I needed so many of these different guys in main events. You just got to put yourself in those spots, right? Whether you got to fade it or whether you got to root for it. I'd obviously rather root for it most of the time, but you can only get yourself in those spots so many times. And I've, I think I've hit probably three out of 10 on what I've needed the main event to happen to win 50K plus or four out of 10, I guess. But, you know, you can only do so much. It's out of your control at that point. But I actually had a sweat. Like, uh, this was almost two years ago. There was an Usman main event. Mm-hmm. I don't know who he's fighting. Covington, maybe? I don't know. He's only fought a couple of guys, right? So, right. <laughs> but it, it was it was a fight where Usman was heavy chalk, main event favorite. And like it was the it was the Millie. They were running a Millie. Mm-hmm. This was like like when COVID was like July of COVID season. They need to bring that back, by the way, please. Right. More more MMA Millies. <laughs> uh and I was it was a three-way chop. I'm up there like three hundred and sixty thousand dollars or something. And people in Discords are like like main event starting, it's like you could do it. I, I'm like, like, dude, like Usman, like if Usman scores like 88 points, I'm oh. dead. And it's like, Which is like 95 percentile. Right, right. That's why I said, oh, I said, like, I have yeah. such a small chance of hold, this holding. It, this is, it's like, don't root for me. Like, I, I'm, I'm telling people, like, I'm, <laughs> I am not considering this to be, like, I'm just. This is a formality now. Right. And this is the old score. This is before they changed the scoring. 
And oh, okay. it was a fight where the first two, first two rounds, there was tons of cage clenching. Yeah. And there was, they didn't get points for strikes and he didn't get control points back then. So unless it was a significant strike, they were literally racking up no points. Right. So by the, like the third round, it was the third round started and Usman only had like 17 points. You're like, oh shit, maybe, maybe, maybe this is actually going to happen. Of course, then he has like four takedowns the next round. He ends up scoring like 107 or something by, (laughs) and it, 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 whatever. But like, that was the only time where it's like, Dude, I know what I need in the main event, and I, 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 I'm literally here, going like I'm not, I'm not even root. I'm, I'm literally not even rooting for it. I'm just like this ain't happening. No. And then it turns out that oh, you get a little glimmer of hope. It's like maybe no, it can happen, <laughs> and then it doesn't. Yeah. Right. So that's, that just goes to show, right? Like even Usman, eighty-eight points. You would bet that every single time, but it's a fight, and if he'd have finished that early round three, like you would have won, and you would have thought that's that's never going to happen. Right, like, well, I think it was a couple weeks ago in the five-five-five when Volkanovski was fighting. I needed Volkanovski under, I don't know, hundred points, and I was like, "There's really no chance." And from the set, from the outset, he had he had no chance of scoring less than one hundred points. But you know, you, you may think that you might not have a chance, but the sweat is there, and that's what makes it one of the best sweats in the world because it is so sequential. And by the time each fight rolls around, you know exactly what you need to have a chance at a top prize. Right, and and so and so and the 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 basically the end of your slate. Is when you when you don't have any live lineups left. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> well, yeah exactly. It's right. like I might watch the fight because I've done so much work and I want to see how it pans out. But right. I have zero live lineups left, and right. uh, I don't even care about what my return is. Right, the enjoyment of your slate lasts as long as you have live lineups. And the like this past slate was the one of the like I think five fights in, I oh, literally sorry. had zero, yeah. I had zero live lineups, and it's like, dude, I typically last more than five fights with 150 lineups, not having something. Right. That that like has a hope, right? It's like okay, I got these three guys. If this guy outscores that guy, then this then Shannon Young won't be optimal, and then I'm right. and I'm fine. I don't That's need Shannon Young. That, that might be a record dude, from 150. Only five fights in being being Dunzo. After, yeah, after yeah, that. T- yes. <laughs> typically, typically on like a 13 fight card, it's like by fight 10. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, and then it's the rare case, like probably maybe maybe 20 percent of the time, maybe 10 yes. percent of the you have a live lineup heading into the main event. In something, it may be in a single entry or something like yeah. that. But I mean, that I mean, you could say the same for Showdown, right? But sh- the NFL Showdown is even. I mean, show, NFL Showdown. It, there's no such thing as a like. It could be the two minute warning, right, dude? Dude, sometimes I mean, I've seen people. And it wasn't me, uh, sweating fucking kneel downs. Yeah, it happens. Colin, Colin has sweated kneel downs before on the, on the plus side and the bad side. He won <laughs> one of his first. One of Colin's first wins was on a kneel down. If the if the quarterback had kneeled two yards instead of one yard, he would have lost 100k. But then in the Super Bowl, in the Super Bowl, when Mahomes kneeled down in their win, he lost 50k on the kneel down. So like, I mean, it's it's the most extreme way of, of playing a unique sport. But uh, I mean, NFL showdown, there's nothing like it for sure. Right in MMA, you don't you don't necessarily get that, right? No, because there's no those small events with that many lineups and everything like that. It's like. Dude, before the main event, you could look at literally all. I mean, you just even scroll on your phone and go, "Let me see where I see, you know, fighter remaining one. What yeah. do they have? Okay, that and you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about stat changes either. That's the great thing. No right. matter how bad we think the stat tracking is, right. right? Once it's in, it's in. So you have to worry about judging, though. That I mean, so so many people complain about that, and to me, that just adds to the variance, which is great for me, right? Sure, I was pissed when Collier lost a decision, but I'm also not. 
a fighting expert, right? I know there are sites out there and touts out there and great analysts out there that actually break down the fight. And they literally know what they're talking about as far as fighting styles and like fighting tactics. I don't know anything about that. I never trained in MMA. So, but I have a reasonable idea of who should, who should win a fight, who should win a fight. So I, yes, I get mad when, when my guys don't win, but I've been on the plus side of those types of exchanges as well. So, I mean, I can't really complain about it. Right. You're rooting for a robbery, right? You're sitting there going, going, I got the, I got the dog. He did a, he, he, he's, he scored 74 through three. Yeah. But he got rocked in like the first and second round. And he came back <laughs> in the third and just like, like, but it's, it for D, if you're, especially if you're playing 150 in large field and you have a bit of everyone, like you're almost rooting for like, I, like the worst case scenario, like typically for, if you have a bunch of a fight is for the favorite to win a low scoring decision. Yes. Like sure. I, I just rather him have two, no points and the other guy have 120. Yeah. You just don't want, you don't want, we, we have fights where the winner scores 72 and the loser has 60. Yes. And it's like, yes. no, I would have rather those 30 points go to the 60 point score. Cause a, a 90 point score at 7,300 do, do way more better than me than, than the yeah. favorite. Right. Well, like the, 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 the Dean Barry, Mike Jackson fight mm. nuts kicked. I poked and I'm like the, the commentators are talking about it. I'm like, Oh Yes. DQ, please, please DQ. Then at least my Mike Jackson gets 97, whereas neither fighter gets more than 30 points. Please, please call us a disqualification. And again, you can, if you're a true UFC MMA fan, you say, oh, that shouldn't be a disqualification. I don't really, I don't really give a shit, right? Whatever the outcome is, is going to happen. Whatever can give me the most points. So uh, believe me, I, and I changed my profile picture to the Mike Jackson iPhone just in, in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in solidarity with the decision. So uh, I'll take it. <laughs> Uh, okay, so Occupy Fantasy. People can go there, OccupyFantasy.com. You have models for every sport, right? Yep, for most sports, yeah. For most of the sports we do, yeah. Right, and I I, I watch your, uh, you, you you put together like a 20-minute video, typically for UFC, on your YouTube channel. Yes, we do, every Friday. We try to, Jake, he, Jake is, uh, he writes our daily plug at OccupyFantasy.com. He owns MMADFS.com, and uh, we're partnered with him. He does a great work, and uh, yeah, he, he jumps on the videos with me every Friday. So with with uh, Colin kind of getting out of the industry, you're going to be doing a showdown show NFL coming up with you know the, Justin Freeman or someone or I mean because to me to me for for these style of these format contests, I think like while a lot of people run simulations, a lot of people talk about correlation. I think you're one of the few that I've hear on these shows that preach more of the let's not let let's just act as if uh, you know relish in the chaos. Yeah. What type of lineups more instead of trying to predict outcomes? You're not on there going. I think this guy's going to do this. Well, you're just like, dude. I just want to build uniques and uh, hopefully something stupid happens. And then, uh, then 700 people uh, 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 reply to my my screenshot of how <laughs> of how dumb I am for winning this contest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I'm not in the business of predicting fights for MMA. I'm not in the business of predicting outcomes. I know basically just let me let me figure out what people are going to do and let me think about ways that doesn't happen. And again, I put a lot of thought into it. So it's not just like uh, if this doesn't happen. Here's a bunch of crazy shit. Right. Like I, I put actual thought into all my lineups. And yeah, I think showdown. We're not sure what we're going to do yet. Um, Davis Maddox filled in once Colin left last year. But yeah, people really enjoy those shows. So I'll, I'll definitely try to figure something out to get going for the NFL season. And I enjoy doing those. It's just the NFL is a hectic season from a content producing standpoint. No USFL showdown. <laughs> uh, I, I play the, the prizes honestly aren't big enough for the the stress that would cause me to build lineups. So uh, I'm playing the the classic slates and been doing well in those. But if believe me, if they had 50k USFL showdowns, you'd, you'd find me in the chaos streets. 
<laughs> yeah, but I mean, USFL this season seems like perfect for a chaos person because, dude, you, you feel free to play sub 1% on guys because they're not actually inactive. I know. <laughs> this is the craziest shit I've ever seen in my life. Like, I don't, there's just rules and they just like, sometimes the rules get fouled, sometimes they don't. And I see people complain on Twitter. Again, I understand. But we're all in the same boat, guys. Like, that shit may happen, may not happen. From a, a longevity standpoint and a prize pool standpoint, it's not great that this is how the USF, USFL is operating. But from a pure DFS player perspective in the here and now, I'm okay with what's happening. Okay. At Brian Jester FF on Twitter. Last question. I, it could have been my first question. Let's hear it. You don't follow me. Do you hate me? Do I really not follow you? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to rectify that right now. Give because it, you, want, you, want, you, want, you want to know, you want to know the, the, the truth? The, this is the honest truth. I would have had you on the show a year ago, but you used to not have DMs open. For people, and like- I, I, I didn't even know that honestly until like a couple months ago. It was, oh, it was when I started the Emotional Bankroll podcast. I was like, oh, I can't DM you. I was like, really? I never noticed that. So, uh, my apologies to you. We are now uh, following each other, and uh, <laughs> let's let's continue to let this relationship. Well, so, no, so sometimes I'm the type of person that's like, like did, like it seems like he's following everyone that I follow, right? It's kind of like, well, like, like I, see, I see your shit on my timeline all the time. It's like, well, clearly I follow him, right? Right. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, I go to DM. I, I think I went to DM you like a year, literally like a year ago. And it's like, uh, can't send messages to follow. And it's like, do I want to do a public at what? It's like, maybe, maybe the dude just doesn't like me or something. So it takes, like, it takes a lot of pride to do a public ad. I'm not a big Right. So I'm like, I'll find someone else or something. So like once I, once I, it's like, let me try Brian. Okay. Maybe, maybe, you know, I, I've always wanted him on and, and it's like, oh, his DMs are open. Oh, okay. Do you want? To, and you're like, yeah, sure, I'll come on. It's like, dude, my apologies. I had no idea. So I'm glad we're following. Doesn't you. matter. You can unfollow me later after the show. Do, do it for public, public uh, PR purposes. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see the quality of your tweets over the next week or so. Right. That'll determine. <laughs> okay. Brian is at uh, occupyfantasy.com. The emotional bankroll podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, you get the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports. It's a 15-hour audio DFS masterclass you can pick up at theoryofdfs.com.